Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, Florida's hurricane season is underway. We'll remember five historic hurricanes of the last 100 years, including the hurricane of 1926. And he grabbed me and threw me up on his shoulders, and he went out the front door with one brother in one hand and one in the other, and me on the shoulder holding his curly locks, and the water was already up to his knees. We'll also hear from survivors of the 1928 hurricane, the 1949 hurricane, and Hurricane Andrew from 1992. The water started surging in under the door. We couldn't keep the door closed. It took my husband, who weighs almost 200 pounds, full weight against the bathroom door to keep it from opening. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. There have been a series of devastating hurricanes in Florida history. In 1935, winds estimated at 225 miles per hour and a storm surge of 17 feet left more than 400 dead in the Florida Keys. Tom Knowles is author of the book Category 5, the 1935 Labor Day Hurricane, published by the University Press of Florida. As Knowles explains, part of what made this hurricane so destructive was the fact that so many people were in the Keys that weekend. That was something that surprised me when I did the research for the book, was the number of people that were in harm's way. Uh, By my count, there there were potentially 1,100 people uh, on four of these islands, but uh, many of them were, were not on the Keys at that time, and, and that there were, I would guess, about uh, 300 what they call veterans. They were actually veterans of World War I primarily, who had been sent there by the federal government in work camps. They were on relief, in effect. And uh, then there were about two, well, probably there, there were at least, uh, I would say, another two or 300 uh, residents who would normally live there, who were in there at the time the hurricane hit. Now this is just on the islands that were, were in harm's way. I'm not talking about the, the total Florida Keys. One of the most memorable aspects of this hurricane is the fate of the train that was sent to rescue people from the storm. About 38 miles of Florida East Coast Railway track was destroyed before the train could make it back to the mainland. The railroad track linking the mainland to the Keys was never rebuilt. Tom Knowles. Yes, that was a very uh, uh, tragic thing in that the, the train was ordered from the, uh, from the Miami office. It was sent down. It left late. On its way down, it, uh, it had to stop at the Miami River because the drawbridge was raised to let holiday traffic through. That was a delay. Then it had to stop at Homestead to turn the engine around so they could back it down. The idea was to have the engine in the lead when it came back so it could use its headlight. And then when it actually finally got onto the keys at Winley Key, the cab of the locomotive 
struck a cable that was normally hung over the railroad, but because of the hurricane had sagged down, the very thick cable that was literally welded to the steel frame of the locomotive, and it took about another hour to break that loose. By the train time the train got down to Alamorada, it was about 8.30, a little before 8.30 actually, and that was when the storm surge came over and it turned the train, all the cars on the train over onto their side, swept them off the track. Just the locomotive and the tender were left on the track. Much of Tom Knoll's research for the book Category 5, the 1935 Labor Day Hurricane, is based on oral histories he conducted with survivors. That was, I think, one of the most uh, uh, interesting parts of the research was doing the oral interviews. And I interviewed not only survivors, but relatives of victims. Uh, for example, the sister of George Pepper, who was the nephew of Claude Pepper, uh, the brother of Rosalind Grooms, who was uh, uh, killed in the storm, and uh, other people, even, uh, for example, Janet Reno, uh, whose parents were involved. They weren't killed or anything in the storm, but they, her father was a reporter and her mother had been a social worker who had interviewed the veterans. So uh, doing the interviews is certainly uh, was a very uh, dramatic thing to me because uh, a lot of the people, the survivors, had some very vivid and emotional memories of that event. Detection of and preparation for hurricanes is much more sophisticated than in 1935, but Noel says we can still learn important lessons from the Labor Day hurricane. The thing that really impressed me about this storm was how fast it intensified as it came across the Florida Straits and the warm waters of the Gulf Stream. Uh, at 8 o'clock Sunday morning, it was a Category 1 hurricane, and it was on the uh, eastern side of the Florida Straits. By 8 o'clock Monday evening, that is 36 hours later, it was a Category 5 hurricane. So if you translate that to a modern-day scenario, uh, that means that the emergency management people to evacuate the Keys would have to make a decision very early in the process because it is currently estimated that there would be about 80,000 people if you tried to involved if you tried to evacuate the uh, entire Keys. And uh, getting that many people off one road uh, will be a very difficult and time-consuming process. Tom Knowles is author of the book Category 5, The Labor Day Hurricane of 1935, published by the University Press of Florida. Lord, hold back the water of Lake Okeechobee, Lake Okeechobee, water. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Janie Gould from the WQCS Oral History Project has this remembrance of Florida hurricanes from 1926, 28, and 49. Back in 2004, Treasure Coast residents received a steady stream of news about the approach of Hurricanes Francis and Jean. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Jennifer Ludden. Hurricane Jean is gathering speed and force as it makes its way toward the Florida coast. 
In Florida, Hurricane Francis is keeping everyone guessing. The situation was completely different in 1926 when a killer hurricane struck South Florida. Because of a lack of warning, that storm caused the deaths of more than 200 people. Many of the victims had ventured outside during the lull. They were unaware that the storm would soon kick up again and be even worse than the first time around. The 1926 hurricane also killed the Florida land boom. It was in full swing in the mid-1920s and had drawn tens of thousands of people to Florida, mostly Miami. Alonzo Bryant of Vero Beach was a youngster who had just moved to the Miami area with his family. His father had come down earlier from Tennessee to join two brothers. They had an auto repair shop in the young community. Alonzo Bryant has never forgotten the 1926 hurricane. At about some unknown hour in the morning, it was still pitch dark. My dad said, come on, Buster, come on, Marooney. He called me Marooney. Let's go. And he grabbed me and threw me up on his shoulders. And he went out the front door with one brother in one hand and one in the other, and me on the shoulder holding his curly locks. And the water was already up to his knees and he was trying to make it to that house just maybe 50 yards from us. Where was your mother? My mother was still in the house grabbing things, but she got out and uh, had a flashlight and started searching it around. And my dad turned around and said, there it goes, and I saw our house collapse right in front of my eyes. Alonzo Bryant and his family ended up taking shelter in a neighbor's stucco house. Practically the whole village was there. Everyone went to the front door of the house. I looked out there and I saw a water tower. It was rolling through the forest and knocking pine trees. They were huge pine trees then, and they were being knocked over. In the middle of all of that, the wind quit blowing, and you could see specks of sunlight. My dad said, come on, Custer, Marooney, let's go, boys. And he got my mother, and he got us all into the back seat of his Essex and he started for Miami. He wanted to see if his garage was still standing. So we went over the wagon track and the gravel road and we finally hit the paved road and the streetcar line and we ended up right there at the courthouse and there was the Collins Brothers garage. And then our car started moving on the street. The sun was gone, the wind was coming up again there were huge storm sewer concrete pipes. They were the big ones, the kind that little kids could stand right up in. We spent the second half of the 26 hurricane in those storm sewer pipes. Dira Thompson of Okeechobee lived north of Miami at the time of the 1926 hurricane. She remembers hearing her mother trying to convince her dad not to go to work that night as the wind started to kick up. She said, it just looks like there's going to be a storm. Well, nobody ever heard a hurricane. We knew nothing about hurricanes. He said, well, I'll have to go. You're going to be all right. Fortunately, her brother was there. So dad went on. We went to bed. Jeepers, while we wake up and this crashing glass and horrible sounds of house sound like it's coming down. It blew the window out across our bed. I remember having to get up and be careful about the glass. So we had to leave that house because it was beginning to fall. We went into the little house next to us, and that one starts going down. We had to get out of that house and go to another one. Everybody was all together. Everybody was in trouble. And the men would help take the smaller children. I remember one carrying me. I thought it was hailing. Oh, it was pelting. So he took his raincoat and covered me. <laughs> I still get teary when I think about it, what they did for us. They had one car in the neighborhood, and it was a little Model T. They would put us in the car and take us to a hotel there in Little River on 79th Street. 
that was our shelter for a while. Did the hotel survive the It storm? survived, and for many years it was still there. We went from there to Opelika after the storm. That was great. The Red Cross had set up a tent city, they called it, and they had a water pipe down the center that divided one side from the other. Well, the kids on one side stayed with themselves. The only time we'd let them come over is something unusual happens. One day, the men went out and hunted rabbits, and they killed some rabbits. And because this was such a momentous occasion, we let the kids from the other side come over there. Everybody shared we all had rabbits. Because you didn't have meat very often? No, not much of anything. Dira Thompson's father was scrambling to rebuild a house for the family out of whatever lumber he could find. The family, meanwhile, moved out of their tents and lived for a while at the bottom of a tower near the Opalaka Airport. Just so Daddy and them could build a house. I think he paid $200 for the lot, and then they built out of scrap lumber. How long did that take? It didn't take too long because they were strongly motivated. A hurricane that struck Florida in September 1928 after devastating Puerto Rico became one of the worst natural disasters in U.S. history. The Category 5 storm swept through Palm Beach County and caused Lake Okeechobee to rise up with a massive wall of water. At least 2,500 people living along the lake in Pahokee, Canal Point, Bell Glade perished in that storm. 90-year-old Frank Chandler of Okeechobee City remembers the storm very well. He remembers walking to the north shore of the lake during the lull and seeing that the water had been swept away to the horizon. You could go out and walk on the lake and the water looked like for a mile from where it was. You could just see bottom where it had blowed all this water back over toward Moore Haven. Looked like ponds in the middle of it. And then it come below and come back this way and it brought all that water back rolling. It was just like a tidal wave. But you went out during the lull and saw that the water had receded? Mm-hmm. It was just as still as it is right here in this room. I guess that's when it's changing or something. I was a boy then, 12, 13 years old. We had been to town. Back then, we didn't have a car. We walked about a mile and a half, and we were coming back. The wind would be blowing so hard, Daddy'd have to hold me by the hand. And that lull come, and then when it come back, it just rolled over. And Boy, I tell you, it blew. Did you ride out the rest of the storm in your home? Mm-hmm. It was just sitting on blocks back then. They didn't tie nothing down. You'd lay there in the bed and you could feel it just shivering like that and feel it raise up a little bit. And you could hear the wind as it died down and you could feel it go back down. And that was all night long, I tell you. But these old frame houses, they're better than block. Boy, when block ever starts, you're gone. You could hear that wind blowing and it just gets so strong. Well, it's going to blow this house away in a minute. But it'd just get up and shake. You lay in the bed. Boy, you didn't know what was going to happen. No, and then most of these old homes would start leaking, and then they'd run you out of bed, start leaking over your bed. Did that happen to you? It happened to Daddy. I heard him in there cussing. <laughs> <laughs> After the hurricane, President Herbert Hoover paid a visit to Okeechobee. He promised to build a levee around the Big Lake that would prevent any future tragedies from storm surges and tidal waves. The result, which was decades in the making, was the 143-mile Herbert Hoover Dyke. James Minahan of Okeechobee remembers the day the president came to town. He came here and was at the Southland Hotel and had sort of a parade, you know. He was talking about the damage of the hurricane and he was going to do everything he could as president of this country to put something around it to protect these people. And he did. It was a long process to get the money and get the engineering and the plans. But before he went out of office, it was started. And to start with, they just built the protection line each town. 
And then after World War II, they went in and connected those gaps all the way around. That made it a solid dike, see. Even though the Lake Okeechobee region bore the brunt of the 1928 hurricane, the storm hammered Florida's coastlines, too. Fort Pierce native Ed Register, who is 88, remembers that hurricane well. He also remembers how local residents got word when big storms could be headed this way. We would get a little information out of the radio stations in Miami at that time. There were two of them, WIOD and WQAM, but usually they were knocked off the air. So Mr. Gray, who ran the weather bureau down there in Carl Gables, would send out telegrams on Western Union, and Western Union would post the telegrams that Gray sent out in order. So you could stand there and get the first advisory, the second one, and so on, and keep right up with it. And that's how we knew about the storms. We did have our own local weatherman, a Mr. Nicholson, I believe his name was, and he had a wind gauge that got blown away in that hurricane. The wind was so strong, and his wind gauge was supposed to go up to, they say, 150 miles an hour. Anyway, it was blown away, destroyed by the wind. You stayed at home during the storm, right? Oh, yes. We just knuckled down, you know, like everybody does in a hurricane and just waited it out. But then my dad drove me over to the newly pumped-in island in the river out there because they had been working on developing a deep-water port here and pumping sand in there, which is what you see today. These trees that they had planted along there, big, huge Australian pines, they were just all upside down. Two decades later, St. Lucie County took a direct hit from a major hurricane. Some folks say the 1949 hurricane was the worst ever. Louis Forget has never forgotten its intensity. It just came into St. Lucie County and went to the Okeechobee County line, went right back out some reason or other. We caught the brunt of it right here. It blew probably 160, 175 mile winds. We lost every piece of fruit we had in the citrus, laid over thousands of trees. Yet in Indian River County, they did pretty well because the wind there was only about 70 miles an hour. It was pretty much Category 5. They were old-type buildings. They were hard pine, stucco, flat roofs, so you didn't get a whole lot of damage like you do today. Did you have much warning? Not a whole lot of warning in those days. No, we had radio, and they could say, you know, there's a hurricane coming, but they couldn't really pinpoint it. But you did know to board up. You boarded everything up, even right up to when the wind was blowing. I can remember in that particular case, a family that lived about a half a mile west of us on Okeechobee Road, the roof blew off. I mean, the rain was pouring in, and it was a very wet hurricane, probably 19 inches of rain. The husband had a wife, had two children, so he got his pickup truck and pulled up to the door, got him in the truck, pulled out onto the road. Couldn't see a thing. I mean, it was raining so hard, so he just drove from side to side. He pulled up under the old store where we were and knocked on the door right in the middle of the hurricane. We let him in, and uh, they spent the night there with all of us. Louis Forget was reminiscing in the WQCS story van. It was set up in front of the public library on the Fort Pierce Riverfront. WIRA was right here uh, along the river at the time, Ann Wilder and... Uh, Doug Silver and Large Silver are running the first radio station Fort Pierce had. The big word tonight, and so they kept broadcasting, broadcasting. Well, actually, the river kept coming in, getting higher and higher, and they were about to get bad trouble with that National Guard sent one of their big trucks and brought them on out of that area. And they stayed with it to the bitter end. 
Fort Pierce native Tommy Taylor was one of the National Guardsmen who rescued the radio employees. The water came up so high, it, uh, as I understand, it was in danger of electrocuting them, shorting out the generator. Before they cut it off, they asked to be taken out. I was on the radio and heard it. I got the boys together and we got them out. Other people had tried to rescue the broadcasters, but their trucks conked out in the flooded streets. Waterproof ignition hadn't been invented yet. But Tommy Taylor had learned something very valuable when he went through a typhoon in Okinawa a few years earlier. He was with the Army Air Corps at the time. He found you could dry out the ignition quickly by using a simple fire extinguisher. He did the same thing in Fort Pierce to get a truck cranked up that carried the radio people to safety. All of this happened during the height of the storm. Stuff was flying through the air. The uh, flying metal and stuff would hit a telephone pole and wrap around it. Had a lot of tin roofs and the tin was blowing off. There was a lot of tin buildings. Old fish house down on 2nd Street and stuff. That stuff was flying through the air. Sam Gaines of Fort Pierce weathered the 1949 hurricane with his family in their wood frame tin roof house on 7th Street. It was way before Doppler radar, of course, but his grandfather had his own source of weather information. It came from members of the Tommy family. They were Seminole Indians, and they lived in Fort Pierce. My grandfather had befriended the Seminoles. He also opened up a restaurant. The Indians would come in on weekends to eat at the restaurant, so they all knew him, and he had a large stomach, so they would call him Watermelon. They had their ways of determining when weather was going to get bad. They would tell him, be prepared, watermelon, big wind coming. They would tell by the animals, if you see a grassy area where the ants have bedded up and the sand would be up real high, it's an indication that they were preparing for rising water. Sam Gaines' mother was an invalid, so the job of preparing the household for the storm fell to his grandmother. She got mother up, bathed her, dressed her. All of us had to take our baths. Grandmother then went and she bleached out the tub because that tub had to hold the water. We had a radio, so we all sat around the radio trying to listen to whatever we could listen about what was happening. The winds picked up. We could feel the house shaking. And then, of course, the tin that was on the roof, the nails or something would come out, there would be leaks. So she had pots. Every time a new leak was occurring, she'd have a pot and they would paint a musical tune, you know, with the leaks in the pot. The winds blew. But we came through it. The houses that were constructed, they were not just put up. The timber that they used, the methods that they built them, for some reason they stood up under the hurricanes. So several hurricanes that today might be Category 5s are part of our region's history. Janie Gould from the WQCS Oral History Project prepared that report. Lord, This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. In August of 1992, Hurricane Andrew left nearly a quarter of a million people homeless and caused close to $30 billion worth of damage. Bill Dudley has this report. And the water started surging in under the door. We couldn't keep the door closed. It took my husband, who weighs almost 200 pounds, full weight against the bathroom door to keep it from opening. And we realized that most of the windows must have been broken. In the As recorded by a University of Miami student, the voice of a Hurricane Andrew survivor, one of the two million people affected by the storm. Her words are part of a new book about people's experiences before, during, and after the event. This was something that was experienced by the entire community. It wasn't one racial group or social group or cultural group. 
but in point of fact, it was everyone. The author of nearly 40 books on historical and social issues, Eugene Provenzo is professor of education at the University of Miami. In the fall of 1992, faced with the disruption of classes and teaching schedules after the storm, he came up with the idea of assigning his students oral history interviews with storm victims. They turned out much better than I ever expected. Although I had done oral history for many years and um, have worked in this type of interviewing, I found that the interviews that the students did, in some respects, were better than anything that I could have done as a professional because they were with people who were immediately from the community, people who often would not necessarily give a professional access. So they were the a student's grandmother, someone from a different racial or cultural background who might be reluctant to talk to somebody in a more professional role. And I think that we got a much more representative population in the interviews than would have been possible if we'd gone out and done it more formally. Provenzo originally saw the histories as a kind of recovery process to help students cope with the trauma and the aftermath. Later came the idea of using them as the foundation for a book, one that would provide a unique look at the storm from a people's perspective. Published by University Press of Florida, the book is In the Eye of Hurricane Andrew by Eugene Provenzo and Asteri Baker Provenzo. The history we constructed was at a deeper and more personal level than could come from newspaper accounts, TV news clips, and so forth. What we have here is a representation, uh, I think a really good cross-section of the community, and have a clear notion of the forces that more significantly shape recent Florida history than any other single event. In writing the book, the Provenzos say they were struck by the emotions stirred up by the experience and the way people's lives were radically redefined in the wake of Andrew. Trees everywhere. It was terrible. People were coming outside, all the neighbors. Uh, walk through all the streets in the back of What comes out of the different was, interviews as you're listening to the people south, talk about when they first became aware of Andrew, as they started preparing, as they lived through the storm, and then afterwards coming out, looking at the neighborhood, checking on neighbors, finding out who's injured, who needs help, you get this shock and deep sense of sadness coming out of the interviews that we're all in it, and we're all in it in different ways. And I just had everyone is saying I had no idea it was going to be this bad. I think the thing that impressed me most about the interviews was the profound psychological and personal impact of the storm. It's very hard to describe to someone from outside of the community. We realize that we all experience something different, and the extent of our injuries is different. But we all knew we were going to get hit. We all had to live through it wherever we were. And that's what hits people in the community 10 years later, is that all these different people were having different experiences, but it was a whole community that was affected. I think one of the things that hasn't been sufficiently understood is that this occurred for everyone, and nobody was unscathed. So even those individuals who didn't lose their roofs or didn't have the wind tear the interior of their house apart were still in the community afterwards cleaning up and also dealing with the people who had gone through much more difficult times. Neighbors that before we didn't speak, we started going out and talking. Are you okay? Can you make it? You didn't even know them before. We became very personal. People started helping each other and all that. Uh, we started talking, and there was extra food. Was In addition to the violence of the storm itself, the book chronicles some of the heroes and villains, the nobility as well as the pettiness of people living through the long and painful cleanup period. 
And although the books, pamphlets, articles, and dissertations written about Andrew now number in the hundreds, the Provenzos believe South Florida may have forgotten some of the lessons learned from the storm. I believe that the community came together in a way without differentiation or discrimination that we may have forgotten. And that's one of the reasons I personally want people to sit down and read the book. The book is In the Eye of Hurricane Andrew by Eugene Provenzo and Asteri Baker Provenzo. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.